Old Lester was running moonshine across the state lines. One day, he was drinking some of the contraband. A policeman saw his truck weaving and pulled him over. He said, son, what's in that jug? Lester told him, he said, water, sir. I'm going to church to worship Jesus. The policeman, he grabbed the bottle. He took a whiff. He said, son, that's not water. That's white lightning. Oh, Lester shouted, well, praise the Lord. He's done it again. And, of course, Lester was referring to the story we find here in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, apparently this was the third day after Jesus and his new disciples had left John, baptizing there on the Jordan and had moved north to Galilee. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Wedding feasts in the first century, in first century Israel, they lasted a whole week. You know, I've actually paid for a wedding personally now, and it was mega expensive for just one meal. Can you imagine throwing a party for seven days? This particular bride and groom, they must have known Mary and her family, for Mary was attending this wedding. And the couple had made a very important decision, probably without recognizing its full significance. Notice we're told. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And let me say to all married couples here tonight, here is the best thing you can do for your marriage. Invite Jesus to the wedding. Include him in your marriage from the very start. Marriage is God's idea. And who better to help you with yours than God in the flesh? Here's a great question for all couples Have you invited Jesus to your marriage? You know, when you invite Jesus to your marriage, here's what you get. You get a pastor who'll remind you of your vows. You'll get a wedding director who'll always keep you in step. You'll get a counselor who'll help you make adjustments and arbitrate disputes. You'll get a family planner to give you wisdom for decisions. You'll get a motivator to keep you enthused. Jesus is everything that a married couple needs. It's significant that Jesus' first miracle occurred at a wedding. For every marriage needs a miracle from time to time. Over the years, Jesus has proven nothing's changed. He still likes to work miracles in marriages. And like most weddings, this one was exuberant. It was a happy occasion until the wine ran out. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, hospitality in the first century was the supreme priority. To run dry at a party was the ultimate social embarrassment. And here Mary's statement implies she believes that Jesus can do something about the problem. But in verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now on the surface, this seems like a stern way for Jesus to address his mother. But the word he uses that gets translated woman isn't as crude as it first might sound. It was a neutral term, not as degrading as broad or dame. 
but neither did it conjure up affection like mom. It was more a generic term, like the term woman or female. And I believe Jesus was making a point here. The time had come for him to begin to redefine his relationship with Mary. He's letting his mom know that the eternal plan of God isn't going to cater to the maternal needs of Mary. Author Mary Zoba, she writes of Jesus' treatment here of his mother Mary. She says, why at the wedding did Jesus push his mother away? Why couldn't he call her mom in front of the throng? A mother needs to know these things. But then a mother, even Jesus' mother, needs to know the Savior more. And how else could she have found her Savior without first losing him as her son? Think about that. For 30 plus years, Jesus had been Mary's boy. We assume that Joseph died early in Jesus' life and he had taken over the carpenter's shop, probably the role as head of household. Mary leaned on Jesus during those years. For three decades, Mary had Jesus to herself, but he belonged to his Father in heaven and to the will of God, and it was time to let him go. Their relationship, you see, had to change. Jesus knew that. Jesus is about to go from son to Savior. He's about to become Mary's Lord. And there comes a time when every mother has to let go of her child. The transition of turning loose of a child and getting back a friend is a difficult one, but it's necessary. Mom, don't forget that your son or daughter is a loner. He or she is loaned to you from God, and one day God expects you to give that child back to him. Verse 5, well, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, here is the last recorded statement of Mary in all the scriptures. And rather than focus on or exalt herself, notice she points the people to Jesus. You know, the Roman Catholics teach us to pray to Mary, thinking that she has some special clout with Jesus. That's a false assumption. I believe that if Mary appeared today, her message would be the same. She would tell us, whatever Jesus says, you do it. The last thing Mary would want us to do is to worship or serve or pray to her. She would tell us all to look to Jesus and obey him. Whatever he says, do it. Verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, a molecular miracle had occurred. What went into the pots as water was now poured out as wine. Jesus is a handy guy to have around. And the host did not know where it had came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk it, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. 
Now, this story presents a problem for teetotalers who like to say that the Bible forbids all consumption of alcoholic beverages. That's a hard case to make when here the Lord of glory serves wine at a wedding. Growing up Baptist, I was taught that the wine Jesus served was nothing more than a stiff glass of Welch's. It's true that the Hebrews diluted their wine, but it's obvious here that this wine had some alcoholic content. Look at the host's reaction. He says, hey, you usually, you usually uh, pour the best wine at first. Then later, when everybody gets a little tipsy, then you use the cheap stuff. That's what he's saying. The host of the party shocked here that the bridegroom had saved the best wine to last. But it's obvious that what Jesus miraculously created in these pots was real wine. Which means there's nothing wrong with wine per se. As long as you don't get drunk. As long as you don't drink to excess. I believe the New Testament teaching is clear. A Christian can drink in moderation as long as he or she is not dominated by anything other than Jesus. The truth is Jesus turned real water into real wine. And guess what? He's still busy at turning water into wine. Jesus can take a mundane, boring, drab life full of duty and despair and suddenly make it sweet and intoxicating. Has your life been infected with boredom, with drabness? Once there was a flight attendant, she announced to the plane's passengers, for lunch today you'll have a choice of chicken marengo, beef burritos, or fruit salad. A few minutes later she said, and if you don't get your first choice, don't worry, all our entrees taste very much the same. You know, after a while, that's what happens in life. Everything starts to taste the same, doesn't it? Experiences become blah. Pleasures become bland. It's just the same old, same old. Life starts to taste like water. But Jesus can turn our water into wine by fermenting our lives with the Holy Spirit. Jesus spiritually spikes the punch of everyday life. Jesus can lift us out of our rut and turn our lives into an adventure. He replaces our blahs with supernatural bubbly. Jesus can restore the sparkle and the flavor to life, even to those mundane duties. And recall where this first miracle took place. At a wedding, perhaps you feel stuck in a boring marriage. Your holy matrimony has turned into a holy monotony. It's been said marriage is like a violin. After the music stops, the strings are still attached. Is there hope for a boring marriage? You bet there is. Jesus can spice up a marriage. Couples, here's what you need to do tonight. You and your spouse need to get on your knees together and invite Jesus to your marriage. Then you need to open your Bibles. And whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Do your part, and Jesus will do a miracle in your marriage and turn your water into wine. Well, verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, remember what John had written in chapter 1, verse 17. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
And here it's fascinating to compare Jesus' first miracle with Moses' first miracle. You remember Moses took water, but he turned it into blood. He turned the Nile River into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. Moses brought judgment on Egypt. Jesus brought joy to a wedding. And remember, we represent Jesus, not Moses. Our message is good news. Today, the Lord comes with joy. He wants to better us, not judge us. Well, after this, he went down to Capernaum. You remember Capernaum is the city there on the Sea of Galilee. It became Jesus' home base for much of his ministry. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, they all came, and they did not stay there many days. For the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. In other words, the Jewish hierarchy had turned the temple into a target. A worshiper could only sacrifice a priestly approved lamb. And these lambs were only available from the temple sanctioned outlets where the sacrifices were sold at exorbitant prices. Kickbacks went to the priests. It was all a scam. As was the temple tax. When you gave your offering, the priests wouldn't accept Roman or Gentile coins. They first had to be exchanged for temple tokens. And of course, this was done happily for an exorbitant fee, an outrageous exchange rate. Sadly, the leaders of the temple, of the house of God, were making a buck off the Lord. And how did Jesus react to these antics? We're told, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Now, I used to think that Jesus just sort of got caught up in the moment. He reached for whatever happened to be within reach. Could have been a broom or a stick, just happened to be a whip. But that's not what it says. That's not what went down. Notice John's wording. He made a whip of cords. I picture Jesus crouched over in the corner of that temple, eyeballing those crooked priests, He's watching as he's weaving. His blood is boiling. His hands are clenching. Hot molten rage is bubbling up inside of him. Jesus is angry. He knows he is about to go ballistic. He knows this is going to turn ugly. You need to realize that our Lord Jesus cleansed the Jewish temple in a premeditated act of aggression. So much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Folks like to see Jesus as Mr. Rogers. Here he's more like Conor McGregor. Jesus wasn't afraid to get violent when necessary. Here he tosses the crooks out on their ear. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter by trade. He worked with his hands. He was a carpenter before the days of power tools. He had a grip. He had strong forearms. He was a man's man. His contemporaries would have never referred to Jesus as a nice, well-mannered guy. Nice guys don't pick up whips and go temple slashing. People who upset the status quo aren't usually referred to as nice. They're called by other names like bother or pest or meddler, but not nice guy. 
The Jewish hierarchy labeled Jesus a troublemaker. And in one sense, that's what got him killed. Jesus was bold and daring and manly. He lived in the moment and he did the righteous thing always at the right time. Hey, Jesus was the straw that stirred the drink. Verse 16, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. These so-called prophets were only concerned about monetary profits. You know, and it's equally sad to go to church today and find a church whose constant preoccupation is talking about money. Realize what made this temple racket so disgusting to Jesus was not just what was happening, but where it was occurring. In the court of the Gentiles, in the outer court. You see, if you were a Roman or if you were a foreigner, this was about as deep into the temple as you were allowed to go, the court of the Gentiles. This meant your one exposure to God was this greediness, not godliness. I think today the media, the internet, the television, the radio, I think today the media is the equivalent of the court of the Gentiles. It's as far as some people go looking into the things of God. And I think it's shameful that some ministries portray God as broke, as greedy, and are always harping about money. If Jesus came to our churches and these ministries today, I'm sure he'd also come brandishing his whip. He would whip the church back into shape. Again, he'd cleanse his temple. In the aftermath of this cleansing, verse 17 tells us, His disciples remembered that it was written... And a quote came to their minds. They recalled Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The psalmist had predicted Messiah's zeal. Jesus was passionate about the house of God and the worship of God. He was consumed with zeal for pure and sincere praise. And so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now remember, Jesus had just cleansed the temple, Herod's temple. I assume he's standing there in the hallways of this colossal structure, even as he utters these words. Herod's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This made his statement quite stunning. The Jews react. Then they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? The first temple was demolished by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The second temple was rebuilt 70 years later by the Jews who had returned from Babylon. In the beginning, the second temple was nothing like the former. It was really a shack in comparison to the glory and grandeur of Solomon's temple. Thus, when Herod came to power in 40 B.C. to appease the Jews, he launched into a massive temple renovation and expansion. Construction on the temple had been going on now for 46 years. Now Jesus says that his sign to the people is to tear down God's temple and to raise it up again in three days. The Jews listening were scratching their heads. What in the world do you mean? 
They couldn't believe how you could tear down the temple and rise it up, raise it back up in three days. Not a temple that's taken 46 years to build and expand. The problem, though, is they didn't have the right temple. For John explains in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. The sign that Jesus would give the Jews was his death and bodily resurrection. The temple was God's residence on the earth. But if the Jews had been perceptive, they would have realized that God had never revealed his presence in Herod's temple. For he was waiting on another temple, a new temple. The active temple at the time was Jesus himself. Jesus was where God's presence rested. In flesh and blood, not brick and mortar. Thus, Jesus' resurrection was the ultimate sign to Israel. The disciples remembered this truth later. Verse 22 tells us, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, notice, notice these intriguing words. Jesus did not commit himself to them. At the time, lots of people followed Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. And Jesus had no confidence in their affections and in their loyalties. And thus he kept the crowd sort of at arm's distance. See, they were after miracles, not a Messiah. You know, it's one thing to say that you're committed to Jesus, but the relationship isn't real until he commits himself to you. He does that only when our ambitions and our intentions are sincere. Well, in chapter 3, we tune in to the original Nick at Night Rabbi Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness in pursuit of more light. We're told there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This was a very important person. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. Nicodemus had a reserved parking space just outside the hall of hewn stones where the Sanhedrin held their assemblies. This rabbi was somebody, an Israeli VIP. Verse 10 actually calls him not just a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. People yielded to Nicodemus. His opinion carried clout. Nicodemus was a rabbi of the rabbis. He was a scholar. He was a statesman. But as we'll learn, most importantly, he was a seeker of the truth. Now this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus had seen the miracles that Jesus was performing. He recognized Jesus' authority. And for him, it was a no-brainer. God had to be with this man. Yet why does Nicodemus come in secrecy? Why an after-hours visit? Remember, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. In other words, he had thrown down the gauntlet before the priests. He had declared war 
on their priestly corruption and hypocrisy. And this had upset the establishment. A line in the sand had been drawn. Apparently, despite his respect for Jesus, Nicodemus still isn't ready to be seen stepping over that line. And so he comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. And the two of them, this respected rabbi and this itinerant preacher from Galilee, exchange and engage in a moonlight conversation. Verse 3, and we get to eavesdrop. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus anticipates what's on Nicodemus' mind. The kingdom of God. You remember what we're told at the end of chapter 2? Jesus knew what was in man. This is how he recognized what was on Nicodemus' mind before he ever opened his mouth. For like all Jews at the time, Nicodemus hated the Roman occupation. He longed for Israel's former glory. He wanted Messiah to come and bring God's kingdom to the earth. Understand, too, Nicodemus was a Jewish scholar. He was schooled in the Old Testament. He had read the promises that God had made to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel. We call it the New Covenant. It consisted of three promises, remember. That the Jews would return to their land. That they would be regenerated or revived in their hearts. And then God would reestablish his kingdom to Israel. God would return them logistically. He would regenerate them spiritually. And he would restore them politically. Now in Nicodemus' mind, understand how he's thinking. In his mind, the first two promises of the new covenant have already been fulfilled. First, the Jews had returned to their land. They'd come home from Babylon. And second, there was a revival of sorts occurring in Judaism at the time. A sect known as the Pharisees consisted of 6,000 rabbis all across Israel. And these Pharisees were showing a renewed zeal for the law. But here was Nicodemus' mistake. He interpreted the Pharisees' legalism as a spiritual revival. Understand the two are not the same. There's a difference between man trying to be good enough for God and God pouring out his spirit and birthing his righteousness in our hearts. Big difference. Thus, in Nicodemus' thinking, promise three was next. The Jews have been returned. There's this regeneration going on. What's next? The establishment of the kingdom. This is why in verse 3, Jesus slows him down. Yes, the Jews have returned, but they still lack something. They still lack a new heart. The second part of the new covenant. Jesus challenges Nicodemus' understanding in verse 3. Unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. You've jumped too far ahead, Nicodemus. You've missed the second part of the new covenant. You've got to be born again. See, legalism cleanses a person's conduct. Only the Holy Spirit can birth a new heart. And to be part of God's kingdom, you have to be born again. In other words, step two of the new covenant comes before step three. To participate in God's kingdom, you first have to be regenerated or made alive spiritually. 
This term Jesus used, born again, at first confused Nicodemus. He thought of a natural, physical birth. Notice his response in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's confused. What does this born again mean? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born again is to be born of the Spirit. God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit shocks the dead person back to life with the Spirit of God. God shocks you back to life through His Spirit. That's how, you, that's how you're revived. That's how you become born again. But what does Jesus mean by born of water? And this is where the discussion can get controversial. Some Bible teachers interpret the water as the ministry of John the Baptist or repentance. You remember John baptized people in the water as a sign of their repentance. And it is true, you have to repent for the Holy Spirit to spark this new life in you. Repentance precedes regeneration. This is true, and this is a possibility of what born of water might mean. Others say water speaks of natural birth, the amniotic fluids of the mother. In other words, to be born again spiritually, you first have to be born physically. Seems kind of obvious to me. I think Jesus is saying much more than that. Still, others believe that water means the Word of God. You remember Ephesians 5 verse 26 speaks of the washing of water by the Word. Just as it takes two parents to produce a child, it takes both the Word of God and the Spirit of God to produce a child of God. And again, this interpretation is a possibility. What is not a possibility, or a translation of this phrase, born of water, is baptism. And there are people who claim that baptism is essential for salvation, and they'll use this verse to justify that position. But again, all we have to do is go to the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized, and yet he was born again. Jesus promised him paradise. He entered God's kingdom. And there are a whole host of verses that teach, though baptism is significant, it is not mandatory. It's not what is meant here by born of water. Here's what I believe. I believe when Jesus used the phrase born of water, he was taking Nicodemus, a Jewish rabbi, skilled in the law, he was taking him back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, and the new covenant. God promised his people to replace their hard heart with a heart sensitive to him. And guess what imagery Ezekiel uses? He describes the new covenant, this new birth, as the sprinkling of clean water and a new spirit. Notice those two idioms, water and spirit. To a Jewish rabbi, in his thinking, water and spirit were shorthand for the spiritual transformation promised by the new covenant. In essence, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, hey, you need to go back and study your Bible, Nicodemus. You need to go back and read Ezekiel. In fact, in verse 10, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. Listen to this. He says, you should have known these truths. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Nicodemus would not have known about Christian baptism, but he was very familiar with the water and spirit of Ezekiel. Verse 6 continues. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to renew us spiritually. Never forget that. Phariseeism or legalism was a work of the flesh. It was man's attempts to be good enough for God. You can get cleaned up on the outside and yet still be dirty on the inside. Looking good isn't the same as being good. Take a pig. Take a little pig. Dress him up in little boy's clothes. No matter, still an oinker. Might look like a little boy, but he's just hamming it up. He's still a stinker at heart. His instincts, his nature are swine-like. And likewise, you can put spit and polish on a sinner. And yet it doesn't change the sin that's in that person's heart. Righteousness is an inside job. It requires a work of God's Holy Spirit. And thus Jesus states, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Salvation is a work of God's Spirit. Always remember that. And in verse 8, he talks more of the Spirit. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I read where in ancient Finland, supposed holy men would sell the wind to gullible sailors. They would sell the wind. It came in a length of rope with three knots. And supposedly every time a sailor untied a knot, it was supposed to release another surge of wind. Of course, it was a scam, for nobody controls the wind but God. Watch the flags flap at Wrigley Field on a spring afternoon. The wind gusts off Lake Michigan. They blow in, and those flags go crazy. One moment the, flag, the wind is blowing in, the pitcher's friend. One moment the wind is blowing out, the hitter's friend. But you can never predict it. The wind has a mind of its own. And so does the Holy Spirit. The wind is sovereign and so is God's Spirit. He has a will of his own. And this is why the new birth is not a formula to follow. It's not a prayer that you plug in and outdrop salvation. Spiritual life is nothing less than a supernatural miracle dispensed by God's Holy Spirit. Have you received that miracle in your life? Have you been born again? You must if you want to see the kingdom of God. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Nicodemus came by night and wanted more light, but he's still in the dark. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? This upstart prophet from the backwoods of Galilee has just given Israel's best Bible teacher a vital Bible lesson in the New Covenant, something that Nicodemus had overlooked. Nicodemus needs to think this through. And in the weeks ahead, he will. For we'll find later he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, Jesus had used the human to explain the heavenly. He had used earthly illustrations to teach spiritual realities. 
Jesus had spoken figuratively about being born again. The problem, though, is that Nicodemus had been thinking literally. He needs to be more spiritually minded. So do we, don't we? Jesus says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, this is the first of many verses where Jesus says that he came down from heaven. And you need to understand, this is a powerful proof text for his deity. Human beings are not pre-existent. Pre-existent. Our beginning, our existence begins at our conception. But Jesus existed from eternity past. Jesus came down from heaven. You started on earth. Jesus came down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here he takes a story from Numbers chapter 21. Have you heard the expression snake bit? Here's its origin. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, when they rebelled against God, they were bitten by poisonous snakes. But God gave to Moses a cure. He was to construct a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and put it in the middle of the camp. And when a person looked at that bronze serpent, they would be healed. That look of faith at the bronze serpent became the antidote for the poison. And this all was symbolic. It had New Testament meaning. In the Old Testament, brass spoke of judgment. The serpent was a reminder of sin and its poisonous effects. And it was when Jesus, the Son of Man, was put on that pole, on the cross. That was where God judged sin by becoming sin for us. And now all it takes to receive healing is a gaze of faith. When we put our faith in the crucified Christ, we are healed from the poison of sin. It was all a beautiful symbol. Verse 16, oh, John 3, 16. It's music to our ears, isn't it? For God so loved the world, not just a special few, but the whole world that he gave. And real love always gives, doesn't it? His only begotten son. Remember, this word begotten speaks of Jesus' deity. You remember how the Jews would think about this. Dogs beget dogs. Man begets man. God begets God. To be God's begotten means that Jesus was, had God's nature, that he was God himself. And to be God's only begotten means that there is only one with this dual nature. There is only one God-man, and that is Jesus. No other human being was born with this kind of dual nature. Jesus alone is both fully God and fully man. God gave his son that whoever believes in him, remember the key is faith, belief, not deeds, not rituals, but faith. If you have faith, you should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's not just really long life, by the way. It's an eternal quality of life. Everlasting life doesn't just begin when you die, but the moment you receive Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Someone suggested that to really appreciate John 3.16, when you come to the words world and, for, and whoever, you should substitute your name. For God so loved Sandy, 
that he gave his only begotten son, that if Sandy believes in him, Sandy should not perish but have everlasting life. Why don't you read it and put your name in it later tonight? Well, here's a final thought on John 3.16. Love is always best measured by what a person is willing to give up on behalf of the one that he or she loves. And based on that yardstick, there has never been a more extreme love than God's love for you. That God sacrificed his one and only son in your place should prove to you once and for all just how much he cares about you. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Did you know that it's estimated that every year in America, 100,000 people die from diseases that are preventable with the proper vaccines and medicines? That's 100,000 needless deaths. Can you imagine? But the same phenomena occurs spiritually and to an even greater degree. For God has provided us the antidote for sin. The only reason that a person dies in sin is because they're too stubborn or too prideful to receive his remedy, to look on the Son of Man high and lifted up and put their faith in him. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. He is not a prosecutor. The Bible is clear. Jesus works for the defense. He has obtained for us a pardon, but it's up to us to receive that pardon. You can reject it. But if you do, don't blame Jesus for your judgment. We condemn ourselves. Nobody goes to hell because Jesus rejected them. They go to hell because they rejected Jesus. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The fellow who ends up with his elbows in sin, up to his elbows in sin, is is not the first person in line to come to the Bible study. In other words, sin turns us into moles, creatures that love the dark. The light exposes our sin and our evil. It's not that people can't believe, it's that they won't believe. Notice we're told men love darkness rather than light. For as long as you're in the light... You can believe your lies. It's in God's light, though, that we're all forced to deal with the truth about God, about others, even about ourselves. And this is what Jesus says in verse 21. He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea And there he remained with them and baptized. Now later in chapter 4 verse 2 we learn that it wasn't actually Jesus baptizing, but it was his disciples baptizing people. They were baptizing for him. But folks were being baptized as followers of Jesus. Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there. This location was further north of the Dead Sea from where John was originally baptizing and where Jesus was baptized. Enon paralleled the hills of Samaria. 
John had to move north because in the fall of the year, the dry season, the Jordan River can dry up. It can become a trickle. John the Baptist needed deeper water to baptize, and so he had moved his operation further north, upstream. And the people still found him. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. This term purification referred to the outward, the ceremonial washings that were so integral to Judaism. They were debating their purifications with John's baptism. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, that is Jesus, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now here the Jews try to fan the flame of envy and competition in the heart of John. They point out that Jesus is moving in on your turf, buddy. He's taking your disciples. Satan was trying to stir up jealousy in the heart of John the Baptist. And here is the key to combating jealousy. It's realizing that all true spiritual authority and blessing comes directly from God. To be jealous of another man's ministry is to question the wisdom and the plan of God. John says, no, his authority comes from God. John the Baptist says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew who he was, and more importantly, who he wasn't. John had no visions of grandeur. He knew he wasn't the Messiah, just his advance man. He says... He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is fulfilled. John, in essence, compares himself to Jesus' best man. And the best man doesn't cut in on the groom and move in on the bride. He doesn't compete for her attention. The best man's job is to hold the ring, hand the license to the pastor, and make sure the groom's on time. But when that couple says, I do, his job is done. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. John was just the best man. And now that Jesus' ministry is moving in full force, it's time for John to phase out. He says in verse 30, He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. It's been said another name for a wedding ring is a one-man band. In other words, there's no need for two grooms. You know, some pastors forget that truth. They draw attention to themselves instead of to Jesus. In other words, they're flirting with Jesus' bride. They're trying to steal the affections of the bride. Shame on such pride. Hey, I am a friend of the bridegroom. My job is to point you, the bride, to Jesus, not to woo you myself. Let's have Jesus' attitude. He must increase, but I must decrease. Notice in chapter 3, the three musts. Always remember, the three musts of John chapter 3. First, the must of the sinner. Verse 7, you must be born again. Verse 14, the must of the Savior. 
The Son of Man must be lifted up. And now verse 30, the must of the Lord's servant. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. In other words, the person who follows Jesus is the one who's looking up, whose mind is on heavenly things, who's not distracted by earthly concerns. Jesus came from above. Thus, if you're looking down, you're going to miss him. And the same is true today. I'll never forget my big warehouse blunder. I, I used to drive a forklift for a living. I would roll in and out, in and out of this cold room every day for eight hours. I'd roll in. The door to the cold room was eight feet high, and so I would roll in with the pallet. I'd lift it up on the racks, which were 20 feet high inside the cold room, and I'd put them up in the top level, and then I would lower the, pallet, the forks and then back back out of the, the, fork, the cold room and go back and get another pallet. Except for one time, one trip. For some reason, I raised those forks and I slipped that pallet in about 20 foot high. And then I came backing out that eight foot door, having forgotten to lower my forks. And I slammed right into the wall of that cold room. To this day, I don't know why my boss didn't fire me right on the spot. But here's the moral of the story. You better be looking up, lest you miss what God is going to bring down. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. This is an important verse. Ephesians 4 verse 7 tells us that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God measures out Gifts of the Spirit to His people. We're all entrusted with a measure or a portion of the Spirit's endowment. But to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was given without measure. Unlike us, He wasn't given one or two spiritual gifts. Our Lord received them all. See, God knows we need to be kept on a leash. Boy, if God gave us spiritual power without restriction, it'd go to our heads. We'd go nuts with it. We'd use God's power selfishly. Whereas Jesus could be trusted to use God's power to only accomplish the Father's will. Thus Jesus became the, the depot of all spiritual power. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. All God's wisdom, all God's power was given to Jesus. God put all His eggs in one basket. His son, Jesus. That's why we need to believe in the right basket. The chapter closes. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him.